0: Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada, a podcast about ex-cadet women mentoring and building community together. I'm your host, Amanda Calhouse, a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada, class of 1994 in electrical engineering. So good afternoon, good evening. (laughs) Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast. Today I have with me Dr. Marcel Ladeberté. How are you doing today, Marcel? Great. Thanks for having me, Amanda. I'm honored to have you and I'm excited for our listeners to hear about your journey because I think yet again, it's another unique journey. I was talking to someone this morning about, you know, just I don't think we'll come across a situation where any two people will have exactly the same journey. And I think that's what's so awesome about this adventure I'm on.
1: I completely agree with that. I think that's the beauty of this network and what you've been able to create. So no, I'm really happy to be able to share on this front also. Awesome. Awesome.
0: So let's start by telling our listeners a little bit about you and where did you go to military college and when and what did you study?
1: So I touched a lot of different things through my military college experience. I was able to go to uh, CMR, so the Collège Militaire Royal de Saint-Jean, and I got to do it for four years because I was a repeater. And when they announced the college closures, I decided to transfer over to RMC. So at the time I had planned to finish off in Saint-Jean and with the announcements, I thought maybe I'd better transfer over now. And so I went to RMC and joined the political science and history major degree. When did you finish at, uh, at RMC or graduate? So I graduated from RMC in 1996. 96. So that was, that was the big cohort, right? That was the big cohort. We had three classes come together in our final year and it was, it was quite epic. I was sort of humbly glad that I, I transferred over in my third year Mm -hmm. to adjust and to learn about Kingston, you know, as a lot of us have had the chance of learning a little bit of the old traditions Mm -hmm. and whatnot before sort of the big bubble came in for our final year, because it was a big year yeah. we were we were up at the base the first year that i was there and then in the second year they had to create new squadrons just to meet the demand so it was really a a really strange time overall yeah
0: so maybe tell us a little bit about how did you end up going to military college in the first place
1: well i am a base brat by <laughs> <My laughs> trade my dad was in the military my uncle was in the military and they were like this would be such a great thing for you to do. You go to school for free, room and board, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So I signed up. I was 16 when I joined military college uh, because I came from the Quebec system. So for our CIGIP, we do it at at St. Jean. And it's what I look at my kids right now. I have a 16-year-old and it blows my mind that we were joining at those ages, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. My daughter's 17 and, and I signed up as a 17-year-old. I, I turned 18 at basic training, but yeah. Yeah, I'm just exactly. Like, I can't imagine.
1: No. It
0: <laughs> no, gives you no. a different I mean, perspective maybe on what our parents might have been thinking at that time.
1: They were thinking, this is great. You'll learn so
0: much. See the world. <laughs> yes, yes. I think mine were thinking, oh my goodness, she won't have debt. Thank goodness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. There was that too, right? No, there like that was sort of the mindset at that time. And so it just made sense to join. And, and like my dad was saying, do it for 20 years. You can retire and do a whole other career if you want to. You'll have a full pension. You'll be set for life, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought, okay, yeah, 36, I could start a whole other sort of venue in my life. And made sense when I was 16. Yeah. But then real life happened.
0: (laughs) It's so funny you say that because I don't know if I've shared it before in the podcast, but, um, turning 37 for me was a real, like, I I couldn't figure out why I was really feeling old at 37. I like, I remember it very clearly. And, uh, I was like, why does this like why does this age have such like meaning and, and it wasn't until you know my friend was actually was, um was actually leaving the forces after 20 years of service that I was like, oh my God, that's what it is. I was supposed to have 20 years of service when I turned 37, and that was gonna be old.
1: <laughs> yep. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I don't think it's yeah, exciting anymore. <laughs> no, exactly. But it's it's interesting and now to see, even at at my age, so I'm forty-eight, to see a lot of my classmates thinking about retirement. I have mm-hmm. I have an exchange officer that I met in the American Navy and she retired last year and I was like, Really? <laughs> Already? Yeah. Like is this happening now? And so yeah, I know it, it does sort of open up a whole series of questions as to, you know, what's next in a sense. Yeah.
0: Well I I even have a classmate who is retired retired like not oh, wow. like he left the military years ago and has retired from the civilian workforce and is traveling and then I you Good know for him. on the one hand jealous and on the other yep. hand fascinated and then like questioning ooh <laughs> should I be thinking about this too
1: <laughs> No I mean my dad retired when he was 50 50 yeah. He he worked for World Health Organization for three years and mm-hmm. really difficult circumstances, rebuilding the medical system in Bosnia after oh, the wow. Civil War. Yeah. And he did that for three years and then he bought himself a nice little house in the southwest of France. And I can totally understand why and the value of being able to enjoy that time of rebuilding and, and a, a whole other life project. Yeah. And, You know, those his words really hit home when he was saying, "You can redo another career at 36." And and I've had to do, you know, I've had to rethink my career a few times, and we'll get to that. Yeah. But but it's true. Looking at it in chunks of blocks of times of what you can do during those moments, and some will be more hectic, and some will be a little bit more calmer, and and how do you use those moments to achieve what you want to achieve? Yeah.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit. So. What has your path looked like from military college
1: to now? So insanely eclectic at best, (laughs) if we were to describe it. I like to say that I've done about 10 years with the military and government service, about 10 years in the private sector, either working with financial services or the banking industry. And now I'm into my 10th year of higher education. And I think this is probably where I'll stay. Now I'm exploring sort of different Facets of higher education, in case in point, I was able to actually complete a doctorate's degree in education um, just a year now. Just finished my dissertation and yeah. my defense in the summer, and I'm still waiting for my final copy of my dissertation the hard copy that we all get, the, the letter bound copy that I'm looking forward to receiving to sort of yeah. say that it's done. But yeah.
0: So you know, ten years. What was your military occupation? Where did you serve after you graduated?
1: So I was a Mars Bar, as we used to say, a naval officer in the in the Navy. I because I repeated and because I took, um, I was working all summer. So something that we didn't say was oh yes, I went through were, the yeah, yeah RETP the program. program. So I went through the reservist program. Essentially, you pay to go to military college, which is still not very expensive for mm-hmm. for what you get, essentially. And the military helps you with jobs throughout the summer, so you work pretty much full time from the minute you finish until you start up again um, at CMR or RMC. And, Because I'm bilingual and had repeated a year, I got extra summers on different uh, ships and different experiences. So I was able to serve on many different ships with great CEOs who wanted me to learn. You're like, this is not a free ride. You're not going to spend your time doing coffee or photocopies. You're going to learn. And so I learned the flags, semaphore light flashes, everything that they could expose me to, they did. And I'm really grateful for that because I got to my final year with an insane amount of sea time Mm -hmm. compared to my classmates. So I went out for Mars 4 training uh, with the reservists. And unfortunately, we hit a bad storm, which landed me in the hospital following an injury at sea. And so I had to, I was given the choice of basically continuing on the Navy, but more Basically, I was told best job for the rest this of your job. life or mm-hmm. you can leave. And given my status and the age that I was at, I thought, right, this is not this is not how I see the rest of my life. Yeah. And so I actually went back to school. First, okay. because I had the degree in political science, which made sense at the time if I was going to be an officer in the Navy for a super long time. Right. But in civilian life, didn't seem to translate so well. So I went back and did a, a bachelor in business administration. Okay. And a sideline story: I married a Call guy who is an engineer <laughs> and electric. Er, he's going to kill me for saying this, a computer engineer, not an electrical engineer. And I learned a lot with him. Um, And so when I did my bachelor's degree in business, I majored in operations management, but also uh, information systems because I was learning a lot about networks. And and at the time he was working in telecoms with the highest pace of change. And that Mm -hmm. led me to do a master's degree in research a topic. And the topic that I wanted to look at was How do you transfer knowledge? Like, how do you measure the embedded knowledge of of a high-tech equipment that you're building and that you know that you have enough that you can send it to R&D or to production, from R&D to production? And so I was able to do research and do a master's right after doing my bachelor's degree. But of course, in doing a bachelor's and a master's degree, you're paying, right? So you've racked up a bit of debt. (laughs) Exactly. And I wanted to pursue a PhD at the time, but my husband was like, yeah, you're, you're nice and everything, <laughs> but <laughs> it's getting a little expensive. Um, and you know, we, we also had, he left, he broke his contract. There was a wave in 96 and at 95, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Of no call graduates that bought back their contracts. Oh, was just buying back. It wasn't part of the, the force reduction plan. No, there was the force okay. reduction plan. And there was a lot of 96 graduates that were okay. dissatisfied yeah. or, uh, you know, disenfranchised. Yeah. Like yeah. my husband decided that he wanted to leave. And so he bought back his contract. And oh, wow. so we had that loan plus oh, my student loans. Yeah. And so after a few years of studying it made sense that I go work. <laughs> yeah.
0: Makes sense. That's a lot, that's a lot of schooling back to back.
1: <laughs> it was. And I really I I love school. I mean I was my gonna husband... say maybe how you ended up, you know, sort of
0: full circle being yep. on the other side of the of Completely. the education
1: system. <laughs> I totally love school. I mean, I'm a, I, I love the start of a new academic year, the sort of the hope of learning something new. And it just never ends, that sense of learning for me, even at this age. There's still so much more that I want to learn and read about. And so it was always in the back of my mind. And I always entertained the notion of going back. And with him, we'd agreed that it would be, you know, when I was telling you at the beginning, sort of these life blocks, Mm-hmm. We look at our lives, and, and for us, it's been looking at our lives in five-year blocks. Okay. So for five years, we'll, we'll focus on reducing our student loans <laughs> for a while, right. and then for the next five years, we'll focus on looking at going abroad, um, which was part of our little life challenge. At the time, uh, after doing my master's degree, I, re- I worked for the Government of Canada again for a few years, and couldn't see myself settling in Ottawa just yet. Mm -hmm. And so I went into the banking industry and worked in that whole wave of um, Sigma process improvement, totally quality management, all those sort of buzzwords that were being used at the time. And the banking industry was creating their own in-house consulting work. And so that was fascinating to me. And I learned tremendously through that job, But we got to a point in our lives where both of us were like, hmm, what's next kind of thing. Right. And we challenged each other to say, whoever gets the first international contract, the other drops everything and follows. So my husband won. (laughs) (laughs) So so my husband won and it took us to Sweden. Ah. Wow. Yep, at the time we were we already had one child, my daughter, and in Sweden we had our second, our, our son, Miko. And we just never looked back. We went to Sweden, we had a contract in China. We were there for less than a year. The contract fell through just because of the dot com bubble, like everything mm-hmm. else all the expat yeah. contracts get cut. We came back to Sweden, reassessed everything and and thought education was sort of a, an important factor in sort of taking our careers to the next level. So my husband decided to do an executive MBA, okay. and it was a three-school MBA that was with London School of Economics, NYU Stern in New York, and HSC Paris in France, and decided that we would go to one of the areas. and And with his work, we were able to land in Paris. And once here, I decided that it was time to go back into the workforce because at the time I'd been, I'd created my own little business of consulting. So I was doing a lot of consulting work, had kept clients from the Bank of Canada and developed contracts in Sweden and in France. But doing it your own job on your own time with contracts Mm -hmm. in different countries with different legal. Yeah, challenges and finances and the whole nine yards. I was like, that's it. I just want someone (laughs) to take care of me on the HR side of things. And that's how we landed in France. We've been in France now for 10 years. And here in France, I had the pleasure of meeting two professors from Sweden Mm. who worked at HSA Paris. And they heard of a job opening and encouraged me to apply. And I thought, hmm, Well, I do want to go back to school, but I do, I want to work for a school. Not so sure. I met the associate dean at the time and thought he had great ideas, very innovative. And some, you know, there was a lot of wonderful things to think about. And so I said, yes, I joined, I came back to academia as the head of the academic programs for the business school that I still work for today. And that's how I landed in higher education, like sort of really haphazardly, but always wanting to come back in a right. sense.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I'm guessing you know because one one of the things that uh, you know you you read about and people talk about is saying your goal saying your goals out loud. And if you yep. if you say your goals out loud, other people hear about them, and then it it can become a self fulfilling prophecy in a way. Sure. I'm imagining that those professors that you met must have known that you had at some point an interest in higher education or something for them well, to even have, have considered that, right?
1: Yeah, I think you bring up an, an excellent point in terms of, you know, when you 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 have to speak out to your network and speak out to the environment to, in, in terms of what you're looking for. When we landed in Sweden, we, I think we both went in thinking, it's going to be like, they're going to, the company's going to take care of us. Like it'll be, there'll be other expats and it'll be easy to integrate. Within the first six months, (laughs) I can remember being back home with my mom and dad. I'm like crying because I'm like, it's not working. This is the biggest mistake we've made. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking. Like it's dark over there. I can't speak the language, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, right. Either I roll up my sleeves and I speak to the network. I, at the time it was, we had Facebook and there were blogs and, you know, p- ways of getting yourself known or getting into different networks of people and, and just putting yourself out there. Yeah. And by doing so, I was able to join the association of the ex-officers of the Commonwealth countries. There was an association oh, in Sweden interesting. Yep. and they were, their patron was one of the princesses of Sweden. Oh Wow. And so given the background that I'd had and sort of my experience, we were invited to join the association and it just opened up a whole other world in terms of Commonwealth countries, of knowledge, of interacting with people. And of course, I made an effort in terms of learning Swedish. I took classes pretty much every day and then I ended up getting a tutor because, (laughs) it's funny enough, my kids were going to Swedish school. And speaking Swedish. And so we'd be out in the streets and I'm like, what did you just say? (laughs) Because they would just like talk to anyone, of course, because that's just the way they were. Um, And so when we landed in France, same mentality, new country, and I thought it would be easy because it's French. I'm French Canadian. I should be able to get all the lingo, blah, blah, blah. And no, it was Horrible. We had we landed here. We got sued within the first three months. It was ridiculous stories. <gasps> wow. I mean, things you can't make up. And and we're just like, huh, what? Oh my goodness. <laughs> but you know, we reached out again. And you know, to your point, yeah, I did. I shared. You know, I talked with parents, and I got involved in a lot of different sort of associations and and communities, and met a Swedish couple had the Swedish experience, of course, because we could speak Swedish and and have a lot of things that we could relate to. And within the year, they were like, huh, you'd be great in academia. You should really consider taking a job in academia. And that's how that happened.
0: Right. The power of networking. Exactly. And not even necessarily, you know, intention, like, Yes, no. it's intentional, but but it's not networking, you know, to get a job. It's no. it's just expanding the the people that you communicate with.
1: Exactly. And and if there's one truth that I like to share and I still share today with students is stepping outside of your comfort zone. You know, like mindfully knowing that you're going to be uncomfortable speaking a foreign language, going to an association meeting that you you don't know anybody or how it's come together and you're just that imposter syndrome that's really loud mm-hmm. and, and strong at times, but really uh, making the effort and some of it will bomb completely.
0: Right.
1: You won't get sort of a call back or it won't click, but at least yeah. you've, you've made that effort and, and tried. And, and by continuously stepping out of your comfort zone, it's what's helped me along. It's really what's sort of defined, I want to say my career, because I've been able to write to people or ask questions and, open up doors that way.
0: It's really interesting. It makes me wonder too, in your career, especially having gone through so many different facets of it, how did you experience mentorship, you know, along the way or, or did you?
1: I actually did. When I left the bank in Canada, I, one of the consultants that I really appreciated for a lot of different reasons, and of course he was an RMC grad, I reached out to him and I asked him if he wouldn't mind sort of being my mentor, even though I was going to live in Sweden. And I was thinking of starting up my own company. And, and he always, he was there from afar, but always there. Mm. I always could sort of reach out to him whenever at whatever time. Now we've gotten to a point where we send each other updates, you know, throughout the holidays of what we've done in the year and how we've progressed and stuff like that. But it was that notion of mentorship is so important. Even though you think it's, you're not spending a lot of time on it. It's, it's a bit of an anchor for yourself mm. to know that you have to hold yourself to account to somebody else. It's a really good thought, or that mm-hmm. someone's there to ask questions that maybe you wouldn't have the courage to ask otherwise, right? In a sense, and so he was there, and he's still there today. You know, we we now we send, like I said, some nice mm-hmm. emails at Christmas to update each other, and then of course it goes to the different people that you meet in your life that play those anchor roles for you. Yeah, because we have such You know, never in a million years would I have predicted that today I'd be sitting with you in Paris, um, just completed a doctorate, so I still have a hard time reading my own name with the doctor in front of it, Um, (laughs) that I actually went to the University of Pennsylvania. Another thing that never in a million years that I thought I would be able to get into that type of institution and have such a fulfilling life, even though it's not, there's no standard for it. Right. I can't, there's no book for this. There's nothing that says, oh, you're doing the right thing or you're doing the bad thing. Yeah. We kind of make it as you go. And I have two children in this, two children that followed us to these different countries that that I think I shared with you also. They speak English like a Canadian, like myself, and they speak (laughs) French like a Parisian. Yeah. (laughs) And both my husband and I are still very much Canadian. So we have the Québécois accent. And when people, when we go out and we speak French and English, because that's what we do yeah. in our bilingual family, people are like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> C'est pas possible. Yeah. What is going on with this family? And this is our reality. Right.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. I am. Um... It is interesting to think that your your kids speak with a Parisian accent when you and your oh. husband are Québécois.
1: <laughs> it's hilarious, and they can mimic the Québécois accent like nobody's business. They don't like right. doing it, but but when they want to pick on it, sometimes they pull it out, and it's just it's hilarious because it it puts us in front of our own sort of differences in a sense. Yeah, and not in a bad way, but it shows us sort of the the different. Or the breadth of the multiculturalism that is in our house, and the yeah. Swedish, though they don't speak it anymore, they've learned German now and Spanish. You can hear sort of the accent come back because they were fluent Swedish speakers for four years.
0: Right, and they were so young when they did it that it. And it they were so young, yeah. Naturally.
1: It yeah. comes back very easily. Yeah, so it's, it's, like it's my fascinating. Irish accent. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I know my French has changed. Like, I know I'm not classically Quebecer anymore in the way I speak. Um, The fact that I say c'est pas possible is very much a (laughs) a marker in itself.
0: (laughs) It's funny because I was explaining to someone the other day about how in Ontario we learn Parisian French, which I never understood because we're Canadian. Like, why are they not teaching us French Canadian? Um, But it's... You know, it's, it's so, it is interesting to, you know, to hear the different, you know, dialects of even the English language. I was in, I was in Nashville this week. And so, you know, you hear, oh, yeah. we, were, we were talking about, you know, the different accents, even across the United States. And I, I, I joked that, well, I, I'm Canadian, so I don't have an accent. <laughs> and they all laughed at me. Yeah, <laughs> they were like, they you, have, you have, an accent. You, you have about? an
1: accent. <laughs> We do. And it's having the, you know, I was very lucky with the military through my dad's career and my own to have lived pretty much across all the provinces in Canada and many of the areas in the U.S. and now in Europe. And to appreciate those regional differences and to pick up that understanding are those sort of little elements that really define a region and a group of people to help understand how we say things differently or we mean the same thing, but like how mm-hmm. we connect the dots. And so that I'm really grateful to have had those experiences.
0: I can imagine that that's been an important part about your current role. So can you explain to our our listeners what your current role is?
1: <laughs> ah, yes. So just a back step. I was the head of academic affairs for four years for our institution. I became the inaugural dean of students for our institution for four years following that. And today I serve as our dean of equity, diversity, and inclusion for the business school. And this also is an inaugural role. It's new territory for our institution on a lot of different levels. And for me, I, you know, even completing the, the degree in, in education. I find myself still reading a tremendous amount to understand the differences, to understand the the cultural, the generational, because it's not the same. My generation, well, I'm a Gen X. <clears throat> um, you
0: and my kids are.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> my, my kids are Gen Z, Z, depending on where you come from. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, those realities are different. Like, like my kids and a lot of our kids, they've had phones and tablets in their hands, From the get-go right and not that that's a bad thing or a great thing there's no i mean it's 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 neither nor yeah it's a different context (laughs) yeah and it's a different but you know their brains are connected in a different way than than ours were we grew up with technology we kind of were sort of digital natives in the sense that we adopted every time with the new changes i can remember with my husband chatting on banyan vines at rmc
0: and I, thinking that I, was so awesome I, I, I was
1: <laughs> sending messages on banyan, banyan
0: vines in halifax i was in my my first posting and i i was telling people about that this week oh that's hilarious <laughs> like, it's one of those tell me how old you are without telling me how yeah, old you exactly.
1: are <laughs> the phones i mean you know it's it, but how fast it's changed and of course how different we learn yeah when i come back to the education side of things like the my kids, you know, what I, you know, my little bubble, how they've learned things versus how I learned things is completely different. And so, in this role, in the diversity, equity, and inclusion side of things, is being aware of those differences and how I help connect the dots because we have jef- different generational views for sure. We de- right. have definitely different cultural views. Right. And part of the work that I'm trying to do is sort of how do I connect the dots when we talk about student success or student journeys or or sort of the, a learning community what does that look like today
0: right
1: and covid has certainly <clears throat> opened up our eyes to a whole other slew of issues and challenges that our societies are facing and so in that role is how do i how do i define strategy for our institution and how do i help put that in practice knowing that there are so many different perspectives and none of it's necessarily bad. That's the thing. It's We yeah. all come in with our different views. And how does that come together to create another solution, in a sense?
0: Yeah.
1: And not one having the other dominate. Like, not one that's better than the other. or do- Like, what are the good things that we can take from every different perspective and build something new?
0: Yeah. I was talking to someone um, just the other day. Oh, it was a good friend of mine. We were talking about how you can have diversity and you can have inclusion, but if you don't have equity, you can start to see how then there's a group that has more power. And, you know, it's really interesting when you, you know, start to think about those three things together, because it does seem very recent where we've really started, you know, at least on the business side to, to put those, those three pieces together.
1: I would almost argue, we're actually, I work with a faculty member here who's a professor in law, and what we've been putting forth is this idea of, I like to do the image with students when I share what what is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Imagine a bunch of circles in different colors, mm-hmm. all sort of mixed together, and that's diversity. When we think about equity is how do we create that everyone's on that same line, that same access, the same opportunities. Um, the image that I've seen going around that's just great is everyone's trying to look over the fence and they have different size boxes. And so that, that to me is equity. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And then the inclusion is everyone's heard. And the circle I like to redraw is all these different colors, all in the same line, but now connected through one circle in a sense that they right. all feel included, that, that we can go and engage to have them converse with us. But the thing that we've been toying around and bringing forward is, and I've seen it a lot in research and and a little bit more in industry now, is this notion of belonging. Yes. How can I, I think the the quintessential question that we see in HR is, how can I be me? Do I feel that I can be me with Mm -hmm. all my labels and my own history and whatnot at work? At work. And do I feel that I belong to that organization, that that's where I give my time and my energy to to bring about change or to bring about to to the mission of that organization, be it private, for-profit, non-for-profit, regardless. But do I feel that I'm part of the work that's being engaged? And that's what we're trying to look at. Some of the research that we've been looking at recently is just to give you a breadth of what it is under DEI, plus B, like we like to say with our, Mm -hmm. our, our professor. We're currently looking at how institutions respond to contentious speakers on campus. Oh, right. We've seen that whole wave in the U.S. of challenging speakers between, you know, extreme right, left, lots of difficult topics. But how do we engage? Because as a university, have to be able to be a place of discussion and debate. There has to be disagreements for right. new ideas to be generated. But how do you create that space that you can respectfully have those debates and those different perspectives without closing the doors. And it's extremely difficult, especially in this day and age because words words can be interpreted completely differently. Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, we've been grappling with that ourselves simply because the podcast that I do is I've on seen. Anchor, which is hosted by Spotify. Right. And, you know, I... I've, I've looked at what other, you know, other, prof- I'll say professional, I don't consider myself professional because I don't get paid to do this. Um, <laughs> so I consider myself an amateur podcaster, but you know, that, that service that um, Anchor yeah. offers is the only free service out there, which is the reason I chose it in the first place.
1: Exactly.
0: Mind you, Spotify didn't own it when I started the podcast. Okay. And, I'm curious, you know, just from your own perspective, you know, it's really interesting. I've been very closely following Brene Brown and what she's been.
1: Oh, know, she yes, I, I simply know her because well.
0: she's on the Spotify platform. Yeah. I actually stopped listening to her because I'm not a subscriber to Spotify. Um it, it was more from a, you know, I'm like I listened to my podcast on Apple. So if she, if you're not on Apple, I'm not listening. But I still follow her on social media and, and things like that. And so I've been watching, you know, sort of her response to it. And it, it does feel for people like her that there's a bit of a rock and a hard place happening where you're in a contract. But, you know, the way she put it was, I feel like it's a high school cafeteria and I'm sitting at his table at the same table as Joe Rogan, which basically suggests that I support him, even if I don't. And so it's really, I'm sort of, I'm very curious, and we don't have to include this, we can always take it off. No, no, and it's
1: actually, it's a great, it is a great topic, and it's important that we lean into it. And so when I get into these conversations, uh, even here within my own institution, I'm like, we're all not going to be comfortable. Let's just clear that out of the way. We're all (laughs) going to lean into this. And we're going to find the answer that works for us. I I work for an organization, so I I try to find the response that works for the organization. But I'm a strong believer in responsible advocacy. And so how, how how can I lean into this difficult situation and learn from it? And we had our own sort of contentious speaker, if we will. She's the niece of Marine Le Pen. Uh, Her name is Marion Maréchal, and she was invited as a speaker from the Student Debate Association in the spring. And our international community were really upset by her coming on campus. And we spent time with my uh, colleague, the professor-in-law, trying to understand, okay, what were the misgivings and how could we create a climate that made it that We would allow because even though we may not personally agree with her position, Mm -hmm. we felt it was important to have those different perspectives on campus because we cannot be completely to one side in a sense. It's closing the door and not creating dialogue. And this is what worries us or worries me anyways at this stage is sort of the fragmentation and the division that's going on. And, And so opening that door and saying, yeah, I am not comfortable with this, but I am going to lean into this. But we're going to set ourselves some guidelines. And with this case, it allowed us to develop a charter, and we called it our Charter of Community Life and Respect. And basically, we we shared with the speaker, we said, we will read this charter. These are the rules of, of engagement in our campus. We welcome these different perspectives, but in a respectful manner. And we will right. act if it's not respectful. We will put a stop to it. We have no problem pursuing if we need to, but... These are sort of the game, the rules of sort of engagement, yeah. and then yeah. we will engage. And we encouraged our students from all walks of life to come and ask questions right. because part of the challenge, and when you come back to that image of, you know, sitting at the same table as p- the potential bully, mm-hmm. well, haven't they, I mean, how are we learning from those perspectives if we're not even engaging in the discussion yeah. and as difficult as they may be, and I've had many difficult conversations, but it's better to keep that ball rolling than closing the doors. And this is what concerns me today is the number of doors that are being closed and how we're not spending the time to try to understand where the other one's coming from.
0: Yeah, it's tough, right? Because it, it is, it gets politicized. Totally things get taken out of context and all sorts of... Um, of course they things. do. So, and it's important that that notion of debate is important. How do we... Oh, so important. How, how, do, how do we consider ourselves a learning society if we're not capable of having those discussions? No, exactly. Dates? Yeah.
1: And I mean, it's just, you know, fundamentally, it's not easy. No. And, and <laughs> there, you know, it's, it's really... At the end of the day, I mean, I've dealt with a lot of difficult issues throughout my career. I mean, you know, we haven't talked about discrimination, sexual violence, racism. I mean, there are so many difficult topics out there. But if we're not engaging in the conversation, we're not moving that needle forward. And it, it pains me to say, you know, even from my own lived experience, some of the difficult things that I've had to go through. But at the end of the day, I wake up and I'm like, I've moved the needle a little bit further. And then I've I've allowed other people to s- express their voice to the same point that you're doing today with this platform and sort of the questions that you had with Spotify and, you know, the Anchor FM. At the end of the day, you're still moving the needle in terms of allowing a space where people can express their experience and share that lived experience.
0: Thank you. <laughs> that is
1: what I'm trying to do.
0: It's, uh, you know, I think for me, the way people don't have to listen to the podcast through Spotify, you know, that's a platform that it exists on, but it also exists on, on others. And so it's not, nor do I ever intend it to be a, uh, <laughs> some sort of exclusive, <laughs> exclusive type of content. So that, that's sort of where I'm, yeah, you know, no, I understand the, the way I've looked at it and, um, but yeah, it's, it is interesting, just, you know, topical that you and I were talking while this it is was yeah. no, it's in, true. The, in the midst of things. So I'll steer us back in our, in our normal <laughs> direction, though. Maybe I'll jump back a little bit. Was there mm-hmm. anything that you learned about yourself from your experience at RMC that, you know, you sort of looked back on and were like, oh, wow.
1: <laughs> I am immensely grateful for my experience at RMC as as difficult as it was on a couple of fronts, repeating a year is a humbling event in itself. I faced challenges in the Navy. And at the end of the day, the book, The Stone Frigate, was really compelling to me because I felt, yep, that's who we are. We are people that have been able to go through a lot of difficult experiences or, or difficult training or, you know, bombarded with information on all fronts and then manage it. And it's a strength that I use still today. I mean, I've I've done a lot of crisis management for our institution, and those reflexes that I got from the military college are mm-hmm. what have saved me. I mean, they're, they are so inherent reflexes that I have now. We managed, when COVID hit, just to give you an idea, COVID hit in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. We had over 1,500 students that couldn't go home. And at the time, it was a very scary time, right? We didn't know yeah. what it was. And I can remember I had medical staff that worked for me and I can remember sending them fully dressed to go into a student's room that was sick because I I didn't want to expose them to any undue danger. Um, And I asked staff to stay with me and we managed, I had about 20 staff that stayed with me and we had 1500 students where we were thinking, we're not sure if we're going to have food. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get them into the hospital. There's something bad that happens. Like, how do I handle those Groups And then on top of that situation, I had two very tragic events. We had a death occur on March 9th when I had a student who was uh, abroad on a team trip. And about a month later, we had a suicide on campus.
0: Oh, my
1: goodness. And so... And those reflexes always came back, All right? How do I take care of everyone? How do I make sure everyone's safe? How do I talk to, you know, the close families, the loved ones? How do I manage? And you're managing multiple things at the same time. And that's, that's the gift that I got from the time at RMC and the military. Personally, Obviously, I, I met the love of my life 20, <laughs> 25 years in and we're still we're still holding strong. So there are a lot of gifts that I have. And of course, our friendships, the, the people, yeah. you know, that sort of I think we all had that moment in the amphitheater, look left, look right. Not everyone's going to come through at the end of the day. And those friends are still friends that even though I don't see, I haven't seen in years. I still talk to WhatsApp text message mm-hmm. um, emails i mean and and out of the blue oh i'm in paris can i come and see you well of course yeah <laughs> can, can my door is open that network of that friendship and that strong bond that we have from then is is always been there and will always be there
0: that is one of my favorite things about having gone to military college is that i have friends across the country and around mm-hmm. the world and exactly. it doesn't matter if it's being You know, five minutes, five years, or fifteen years since you've seen each other, you can pick up where you left off.
1: Exactly.
0: I don't know many other groups that have that type of um, camaraderie.
1: Nope. No, not to that extent. I haven't. Yeah. I haven't experienced this, and I think there's part of it that's the education side thing, because we, you know, your your university friends are usually the friends that you have for a long time, and So we had sort of the Mm -hmm. beauty of having the university experience and then the military experience and sort of all the events that sort of shape us. Yeah. Um, So no, that's, it's a rare sort of Trinity in a sense of things that we experience. And I'm hugely grateful for that Yeah. and what it's given me today.
0: So what have been some of the highlights then for you over the, you know, over the past, I'll say 25 years.
1: (laughs) Oh boy. Oh man. Graduating, obviously. <laughs> nah, I mean it's I mean for me, someone who had been six years in military college, it's yeah. not a nothing. Yeah, that's, that's... <laughs> that was a big deal. Graduating yeah. having that degree. I thoroughly enjoyed my time in the banking industry because I learned tremendously I the role of being sort of a, a consultant and helping organizations come together. And I'm grateful for the president that we had who, who did not believe in teams coming in and fixing things and going out. He was mm-hmm. like, you need to make them own the situations. You need to learn, you need to help them learn how they can take control of, of situations and improve on their own. Right. And so success was like, how did I teach them to get sort of, mm-hmm. you know, get better at what they were doing and yeah, then yeah. them teach themselves. Yeah. Uh, I love that experience. Of course, going to Sweden, like I said, the first six months were hell. (laughs) I -hmm. didn't think we were going to survive. And then when I had that moment where I'm like, right, we're going to make this work. And it came together. I learned Swedish, we got involved and we had such a great time, even our small time in China. like There were so many wonderful moments and so many areas that i've they that learn like learning another language and learning about another country's history or going into a country like china and thinking right i've read all the press i, I know what i'm getting myself into right I, the the great firewall of china there's no communication blah, blah blah and getting there and going i i can't believe how warm the people are i i, I so my husband and i dream of going back to china because it was such an eye-opening experience for us. And we we would love to have our children see that. And here in France, being able to actually hold down a full-time job and do a doctorate in education and finish it. I didn't think I was going to be able to do it at this age and at this time in my life, but I did. And I'm so greedily, selfishly proud of myself. Um, oh, you should be.
0: You should be. Yeah. It's a huge accomplishment.
1: And the possibilities of tomorrow, like, you know, I was saying at the beginning, I'm 48 years old, and, and I know some people, some of my friends are retiring. And, and there's, you know, I think you and I joked about this, the ads when we were younger, the Freedom 55. And That's I'm like, right. is, this, is this it? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not done. I still have at least 20 years ahead of me. <laughs> you know, there's still things that I want to do. And there's still things that I want to learn yeah. and try my hand at. And so this is what those are sort of all the highlights and the continued projections of what highlights could be tomorrow. Yeah. I say
0: that is a great segue into my
1: last question, which is what is some
0: advice that you would like to give others? It could be about any stage of their life, but. Oh yeah. You know, what, what would be some advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with today?
1: Without fail, stepping outside of our comfort zones. Honestly. It's what brought me to where I am today, yeah. because if I'd listened to myself and self-censored, I wouldn't be where I am. And it meant stepping outside of my comfort zone. And I, I blush. I'm, I'm blushing now. It's ridiculous. <laughs> We're on a podcast. And you guys are not going to see me. And, but I do. I blush. I, I yeah. don't like public speaking. I, I face a thousand students at the beginning of the year, and I, I joke about it with them too. But I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone. Right. And if there's any advice, keep doing it, even though you think I shouldn't or what's the point. And even if the door gets closed or you don't get what you thought you would get, you did it. Right. You you at least did it. You at least tried. Exactly.
0: It's fantastic advice. And I will tell you that I am also a blusher. (laughs) So (laughs) so I I can totally relate. I think it's the reason that there is no video podcast that accompanies (laughs) our podcast. I, I you know, I've started to take a picture at the end. Um, But yeah, I I, I love the audio medium because nobody can see me when I'm blushing.
1: (laughs) I know it's, it's hilarious. And it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm like I said, I do Presentations, speeches, conferences, the whole nine yards now. And I'm like, yeah. uh, I'm going to make it a joke. I'm just going to lean into it. And it's just that at least, yeah. you know, I care. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, that's, you know, that's, a, it's a,
1: that's also good advice,
0: actually, because, um, yeah, I've, I've taken to doing a lot of presentations over the last couple of years through Zoom. And I'm like, well, I don't know if you can tell as, well, as much on Zoom. <laughs> I feel
1: like you can't. <laughs> Not as much, thankfully. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: Well, it's been awesome talking to you today, Marcel. Ah, Same with you. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited for others to hear about your story.
1: Yeah, and thank you for doing what you do and and creating this platform. I'm really grateful, and I've heard some great testimonies. So it, it does sort of give you hope that I can be completely different and still move forward, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Uh,
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, please reach out to us at WMNCanada at gmail.com or on Instagram. Special thanks to our podcast editor, Ethan Kuenka.